More and more Christians don't know what they don't know. Sure, I'm a Christian, they say, but they have no idea what that means. In fact, for many Christians, they don't even know what it means to be a Christian. I shared with the teens last week, maybe two weeks ago, a recent Barna poll where 4% of millennials do not have, excuse me, 4% of millennials do have a Christian worldview. 4% of millennials have a Christian worldview. Well, let's up that to 12% for youth pastors. 12% of Barna Research, 12% of youth pastors have a biblical Christian worldview. Well, let's up that now to 41% when we're talking about teaching pastors. A Barna research poll shows that of Christian pastors who teach and preach, only 41% of them have a worldview that is impacted by what God's word says. Biblical education is increasingly being drained in the public arena. You're not going to see it much in culture. You're not going to see it much in schools, public and private. And so the place you would hope it would be happening amongst Christians is at least in the home and in the church. But if those of you who are sitting out there are hearing me don't know the word of God, how can you hold me accountable to it? If you simply believe it, if you simply believe what's coming from my mouth, but do not know God's word, how will you hold me accountable? This year, as I have opportunity to preach, I want to provide you all with anchor points. Last year, I went through the I am statements of Jesus Christ. This year, I want to just give you a verse. I want to give you a verse that you can hang on to when the storms of life hammer you. We're going to take that verse and we are going to unpack what it says. It's easy to remember. It's easy to memorize. That's great. Knowing it, that's wonderful. But what is the depth? What is the root underneath that verse? And that is where we are going to anchor ourselves throughout the year when I have an opportunity to preach and teach. Last Sunday, I shared that it was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And when one considers the truth of what happens during an abortion, it, it cannot help but leave you gasping for air. But something that is very easy to overlook when you are considering this issue is the pressing guilt that is felt by those who have traveled that road. The guilt is real and it can be crippling. One woman testified, I was so ashamed and so afraid someone would find out and I knew that God would never forgive me. I didn't have any religion, but I started going to church, but a part of me could never forgive myself for what I had done. Such a pounding nonstop guilt is common among those who have walked that pathway. But they're not alone. Guilt is not a problem for the women alone. One man wrote of ending his son's life in the womb because the child was a Downs child. He writes, 
It is now 10 years after Samuel, and I am still carrying the guilt and shame. I have begged God's forgiveness numerous times. I want forgiveness so bad, but feel unworthy of it at the same time. I can never change what happened, but will learn to live with it somehow. The guilt I feel of not trusting God's plan is ongoing. I trusted him up to the point of learning that Samuel was handicapped. I never even prayed for an answer of what to do, but just turned my back on Samuel and on God. I know it will be with me for the rest of my life. If anyone can hear my anguish over this when making your decision, please trust God's plan and let your Samuel live. He moved the woman carrying his child to end his son's life. Now, Saint, hear me. You may not be dealing with the guilt of abortion. You may. But I do know that you are dealing with the consequences of past sin in your own life. For some of us, the guilt of that sin, whatever it is, might be pressing on our chest like an NFL lineman. And sometimes you just can't even breathe in the dark of night when hot tears soak your pillow. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be pressed also by the weight of truth that it was your sin that put him on the cross. It was my sin that put him on the cross. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-10 through 10, brings us to a fork in the road with regard to our guilt. Paul writes, he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter has grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance, whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance can drive us to our salvation in Christ or it can destroy us. Today, my goal is to give you an anchor point, a truth from God's word that you can hold on to when the whispers of Satan call to you, call your mind back to the sins of your past or perhaps the sins you've just committed that are laying at your feet. He wants to crush you with the guilt of your sin until you are no more. But God, our God and our Savior Jesus Christ makes plain to us, though, that we needn't bear that guilt. Today we will look at the glories and the greatness of our salvation found in Jesus Christ as spelled out in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, oh God, that the fragrance of your glory would fill this room, that the power of the Holy Spirit would anchor us in the truth of your word. God, that you would guard my lips, that you would guard our minds, that you would be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
the first thing we see in this is that there is a condemnation and it is well-deserved. By saying there is therefore now no condemnation, it implies that there was condemnation. Death row, guilty as charged for every man, woman, child, Jew, Greek, slave, free. Now, condemnation is not really in vogue in our culture today. Sin is not really in vogue in our culture today. But sin is real. And what we have here is essentially gospel 101. There is a God. He is holy, Isaiah 6, 3 says. Holy, holy, holy. Psalm 147, 17 says he is righteous in all his ways. Now this, we don't often fathom. When folks look to an eternal hell and the concept of a hell, they, they blanch, they flinch from it. They recoil at condemnation because they don't get the utter holiness and majesty and goodness of God against whom we have all sinned. You know, the Queen of England recently passed, but to imagine somebody throwing a rotten tomato at the Queen of England for a Brit, it's like, how dare you? You know, how could you do such a thing? I mean, she's a good lady. You may not agree with her politics, but you can't deny it. she's a great lady. How can you throw a rotten tomato at her? And we get that. We go, that's terrible. How much greater God? Any sin that we commit goes far beyond a rotten tomato in light of the goodness, holiness, grace, kindness, and majesty of God. We have a holy God who has provided for man an unstained creation. Genesis 1.31 makes plain that all of his creation was very good. And then we obliterated it when we sinned. We did not believe what he said. We twisted what he said. And yes, this was, this was Eve. This was Adam. This is us. We don't believe what he says. Well, did God really say? We go, well, maybe he didn't. And we twist it to suit our own desires. They coveted what they did not have. They wanted to be God over themselves instead of letting God being God and them being the creatures. This sin that took place in the garden has been passed to all of us. Romans 5.12 tells us that therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. All mankind, everyone. From John to Katie. Front to back. We have all sinned. David knew and understand, understood this condemnation full well. He makes this plain in Psalm 51 verses 3 through 5. He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil what is in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin 
did my mother conceive me? Yep, we were born in sin and we commit sin. Romans 3.23 states that. And the wages of sin from a just and holy God is death. Not merely, though, a physical death, but for those who do not repent and turn to him, it is an eternal death. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in first, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He, he focuses in, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The person in all the New Testament who spoke most about hell was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he described it as a place where the worm never dies, the flame is never extinguished, agony, inescapable. It is a spiritual death, a suffering away from the presence of God and his glory. We know it. We feel it. We know there's something wrong. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? These are mere pointers to the truth of a condemnation that hangs over every man and every woman. Apart from Christ, we all stand condemned before God. This is the frustration of Paul in Romans chapter 7. But the equally breathtaking note here is Paul's exception. And that's our second point, that there is therefore now no condemnation. Paul declares it as a point of fact. Lawton sits 40 miles to the north. That is a point of fact. The moon orbits the planet. That is a point of fact. There's no maybe, it is. The blind man may not see the moon and may not believe it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. The homebody may never have traveled north of the Red River and never seen Lawton, but it's still there. They are. And there is therefore now no condemnation. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, it's based on his previous argument. The entirety of this statement anchors itself on the first seven chapters of Romans. It is an argument that Paul has made that is based in logic and reason. It is an argument that Paul makes that is anchored in the historic reality of the gospels of Jesus Christ. It is an argument he has made nailed to the unchangeable truths of God's word that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Saint, if you are ever beset by the guilt of your sin, hold fast to Romans 8.1 and read Romans 1-7 through 7, because they are going to unfold essentially what we have already discussed in a nutshell about the state of man. But this condemnation, no condemnation, poof, it's gone. In the song, how can this be? How can that be? But that is the gospel, and that is the stuff of the epistles. That is the stuff of Jesus' ministry. John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin. God the Father made the Son sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Poof. Colossians 2, 11 through 15 describes what went down. In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, condemned in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? He goes on. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All the sin of all humanity nailed to the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ took on himself the sin of all humanity. He bore our wrath, excuse me, bore our sin willingly that he would then also bear the wrath of God. Done. God's work. You had a debt you could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe, a song states. He willingly took our place, and this greatly pleased the Father. He bore the full fury, and to our credit, we get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's not fair. You're right. That's grace. What a blessing that is. So, hey, Saint, here's the truth. There is not even the slightest drop of hostility in God toward you. Pastor preached this when he went through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That hostility is not between Jew and Gentile. That hostility is between us and God. It's done. This is why our guilt is so crushing. It does not honor what God has done in Christ Jesus. It does not believe what God has said in his word. When I still bear the guilt, oh, oh, and, and I let Satan just hammer me. I think, oh, there's got to be something else. I don't believe what God is saying. It elevates my ability to repent. It elevates my ability to do something to atone for my sin. I can't. It is a lie from hell. 
saint, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, let me back up for a minute. This does not mean there is no consequence. There is consequence. There will always be consequences under the sun for the sin we have committed. The murderer is going to go to jail and may face the death penalty. That is just and right and good. But if he repents before the living God, there is therefore now no condemnation. And he, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross did nothing. He could do nothing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have an example of consequence. Somebody put out of the church for unrepentant sin. There was this little fellow. The Bible refers to him as a little fellow named Zacchaeus, who extorted money as a tax collector. And what did he do? He repaid his debt. He repaid what he had stolen. Now, consequences are not an easy road, but it is a road that Christ will walk with you. It is a road you will not walk alone and you are in Christ a new creation. So when we're talking here in Romans 8, when we're talking about the vertical issue, yes, the consequences may still remain, but Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. There is therefore now no condemnation. And this takes us to the last part of the verse, the third point here. This is for those who are in Christ Jesus. An obvious point to that is then that there are those who are not in Christ Jesus. My saying I am in Christ Jesus does not mean I am in Christ Jesus. Jesus made this profoundly clear himself in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, when he describes himself as the good shepherd, he says, my sheep know my voice and I know them and they will follow me. They will follow where he leads. Christ makes this plain also in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he says, those who love him will obey his commandments. So then, how can I have this assurance that I am in Christ? This is Jesus' desire for us in his prayer to the Father. In John chapter 17, verses 20 to 24, Jesus prays for us. He says, I do not ask for these, my disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Now, oh, we're all going to be one in God and God's one in us and kumbaya. And it sounds like a big ocean of mush, nothing. You know, I'm a drop of water in the ocean. Where are you? You're nothing. But that is not what God is talking about. Christ remains his identity in his intimacy with the Father. As God the Father is distinct, as God the Son is distinct, as each of the disciples is distinct, so are we. And together in God, as he has adopted us in, we have relationship. In marriage, I am one flesh with Tracy. But we are distinct in our union. But this is a place for us and no one else. But this union in God is open to any who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in what he has done. When Jesus answers Thomas' declaration of his deity, when Thomas goes, my Lord and my God, after finally seeing him, after he first doubted, Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's you. That's me. We have not seen and yet believe. That, that's what it is to be in Christ. To believe and have relationship and fellowship with him. Believe what? Believe the evidences of creation. Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1. The creation cries out who this God is that we follow and the truth we believe of the word. After the verse that Jesus speaks to Thomas, John continues in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs, giving evidences, in the presence of these disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In John's first epistle, he offers a similar encouragement. John 5, 13, I write these things that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what Paul's anchoring Romans 8, 1 in. The truth of his declarations in chapters 1 through 7. He assumes you heard him. He assumes we have read this. He writes that we may believe. Dear ones, how will I know unless I read? How will I know unless I read and believe. How can I speak a new language unless I speak the language? David Flink learned this 
going to Chile. He learned Spanish in South Texas. He, okay, I learned Spanish. No, you don't know Spanish until you get there and you start trying to preach and talk to people in Spanish. Oh, maybe my Spanish isn't so good. I, I, can't, I can't be a Christian without saturating myself in the word of God. What does he want of me? What am I anchoring my life in? Paul exhorts Timothy to train himself to godliness. I have to discipline my life. The anchor point I give you today depends on your knowing chapters one through seven of Romans. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, Satan. Peter describes him as a roaring lion. A roaring lion. He wants to press on you a worldly grief intent on destroying you. I read that in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10 earlier. But Jesus' words about Satan, we really need to take to heart. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character. Satan wants you to feel the full weight of your sin. Think of what could have been. Think of the people you have hurt and you've devastated. Think of the thousands of dollars you've thrown away. Think of the friends you've lost. Men and women who have lost careers and families. Pastors have shipwrecked their ministries. Wives have squandered family savings. Men have been arrested for ethical lapses. And yes, the truth is we're going to have to live with the consequences of our sin. Inescapable. But God does not want you destroyed. I must be so saturated in the truth of God's word that when those dark nights and days of distress come upon me, when the movie of my memory plays back the nightmares of what I've done, that God's clear voice will break through with clarity the unalterable fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saint, if you are in Christ Jesus, do not give a moment to the lies that Satan whispers in your ears. Wrap yourself in the security blanket of God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let the reality of Romans 1 through 7 bring into crystalline focus the glory of Romans 8.1. And you might say to me, you don't know what I've done. You're right. And you don't know what I've done. And as bad as I think I might be, the reality is that I am far worse than I could ever imagine. And so are you. But the thing that people do not get is how much greater the blood of Jesus is than all the sin that has ever been committed. If I took a gallon jug right here and filled it with all of the sin that has ever been committed, if I could put it into a gallon jug and sit it right here, the blood of Jesus is like the oceans of the world in comparison.
it covers all. In truth, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been convicted today about where you truly stand, uncertain of your destiny, today is the day of salvation. His great and gracious salvation is rich and free. Repent of your sin and accept the free gift and know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let this truth anchor your soul from this day forward. Let's pray. God, what a truth. What a truth. Help me believe it. Help my unbelief. God, for my brothers and sisters here, help their unbelief. Oh, that we would know this, that we would dance through the fields knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness. Help us to live this out day by day, moment by moment. We beg in Jesus' name, amen.